Welcome to the OIS Podcast, where you get candid conversations with the leaders and drivers of ophthalmic innovation. And now, here's our host, Tom Salemi. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Salemi. Welcome back to the OIS Podcast. We've had a string of uh, wonderful discussions with some of the great innovators and leaders in ophthalmology. And I'm happy to add Dr. Jack Holliday to the list of OIED podcast guests. Welcome to the conversation, Jack. Well, I uh, think that talking about the uh, new task force that has been assembled by the Academy and the FBA to determine uh, new endpoints and measures for uh, premium IOLs that are coming down the pipeline is a very important topic that we could discuss. Great. Well, I'm glad you're sharing it with us today. Uh, we'll, we'll get into that in just a moment, but I'd love to find out about a bit about you. I've looked on your website, which has the very cool name, DocHoliday.com, which I, I appreciate. Uh, you've got a, a list of extensive accomplishments there, and I invite anyone listening to, to take a look. Uh, but how did you find your way into uh, ophthalmology? It wasn't actually the most uh, directive paths, if I, can, uh, if I can tell from reading your background. No, it, it wasn't, and it was uh, one of those things that I was just very uh, fortunate. Uh, there were a number of things that happened along the way that were just uh, luck or serendipity. Uh, but my background was in electrical engineering, and I co-opted, uh, fortunately, at a company called Barrow Electronics in Garland uh, that had a lot of government contracts and top-secret uh, projects that related to night vision devices that uh, I helped develop and design and work with them for almost five years during my undergraduate work. And then as I got further along, uh, I got interested in biomedical engineering and started taking a few courses at uh, Southwestern Medical School in uh, Dallas. I was an SMU in graduate school and uh, decided that if I was really going to do biomedical, I needed to get a medical degree. So I went to Houston for a three-year medical school program, and during that third year, I took a rotation in ophthalmology, again, which was just another fortuitous event. And uh, by the end of about two weeks, uh, they showed me a slit lamp and a direct ophthalmoscope and some other instruments, and I was... Uh, showing the chief resident better ways to use them and how uh, they could be used better to examine patients. And so at the end of that uh, rotation, the chairman offered me a spot in ophthalmology, and uh, that's how I got started and where my interest in optics developed, and now it flourished in ophthalmology. That's fantastic. And now you're working on the AO task force to, to update the FDA grid, as you mentioned earlier, and develop uh, guidance documents for uh, the innovative endpoints for IOLs. Uh, and we're going to have uh, Jack's uh, put together a PowerPoint presentation that we obviously can't review here in the podcast, but we will put it up on our website, ois.net. So for those of you who'd like to uh, see more of what Jack's referring to or at least talking about, uh, feel free to visit the website and uh, you can download the PDF. Uh, re regarding the IOLs, I mean, they've been around for decades. Uh, what, what, what are the unmet needs that are, that are still remaining? And how active, oh. how active is this area in, in innovation? I mean, there's clearly a, there's a lot coming down the pike. Well, and I'll tell you what's happened. Uh, the FDA and uh, the Academy have been working together for many, many years. And I was uh, fortunate to be one of the early panel members with Walter Stark and uh, another gentleman named David Worthen in the early 80s. 
And at that time, we had lenses that were iris-supported. They had uh, lots of complications with cystoid macular edema, endothelial cell loss. And it was just about that time in the late 80s that uh, posterior chamber lenses that were either placed in the sulcus or the bag were coming along. And they were making significant improvements uh, in terms of uh, reducing the complication rate. And these were rigid lenses. They were made of polymethyl methacrylate. And then over the years, we began to realize that smaller incisions were better mm-hmm. and that we could make these out of foldable lenses of silicone and acrylic. And then that generation came along, and we pretty much moved away from the PMMA rigid lenses so that we could get these through small incisions. So for the last uh, 10 to 15 years, uh, these foldable lenses have pretty much dominated the market. But the goal, the mecca, the silver grail, if you will, or the holy grail, has been that even though we can restore distance vision, Mm -hmm. get people to 2010, 2012, 2016 vision, the fact is we've not been able to fully meet the challenge of providing near vision or intermediate vision. Uh, We've done that uh, and attempted with multifocal lenses, and they do provide pretty good near vision, but at the expense of halos and loss of contrast. And as we've seen, of the 100% of lenses in the U.S. that are implanted, only 8% of the lenses are actually multifocal lenses, what we call premium channel lenses today. And the reason for that is that the doctor is leery and a little bit worried because if the patient does complain of problems with halos and glare, then his only choice is explantation of the lens. And uh, with monofocal lenses or with mini monovision, uh, you know, the worst case is you've got to give them a pair of reading glasses when that's uh, a problem. So we haven't reached the holy grail, and that's what's so exciting about these lenses that are coming down the pipeline is that they do have complete solutions of uh, being able to provide accommodation. And the problem with the accommodation is we didn't have any measures in the guidelines or in the FDA grid or any of the other things that were available because for rigid lenses that doesn't happen and even for foldable lenses they don't change the shape uh, or position of the lens enough. So there are no real guidelines to cover these new things and another uh, to- another topic or another category of these are what are called extended depth of focus lenses. Well, these lenses don't have a specific focal plane. As you'll see if you look at those slides on the website, they end up providing a graduated focus so there is no specific uh, focal point. It's a continuous focal range uh, which doesn't get you to 2012 or 2016 but it does provide 2020 throughout that range, and so we have to have standards. How much can we sacrifice in terms of the best corrective acuity for these extended depth of focus? And for the accommodating lenses, those that are truly going to provide accommodation, those now will have to have measures. For example, like a defocus curve, we call it. Well, a defocus curve measures what the acuity is as a function of defocus. 
Well, those are new things that have just come up uh, relative to uh, small aperture lenses and multifocals, but have never really been uh, a measure that we've ever set a definite endpoint at what that needs to be. So there are other things like uh, through focus response and uh, 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 things that the doctor is uh, familiar with, and that is what's the vision at intermediate and what's the vision at near. And all of those parameters have to be discussed. We can no longer use what's called paraxial optics, which is the old lens equation that lets us calculate things uh, along the axis of the lens. We're going to have to use complicated things like ZMAX and Snell's Law to actually do ray tracing on these lenses and determine what the theoretical performance is, measure them in the laboratory, and measure them again uh, clinically. And all of these should corroborate one another. Mm -hmm. And those are the kind of things that the task force will, uh, will try to do and we currently have uh, six measures, members uh, from the FDA, of which Malveen is the head, and we have uh, six members that include uh, Adrian Glazer, myself, Flora Alum, Scott McRae, Sam Maskett, and Walter Stark are the AAO representatives, and these 12 people are going to try to get a handle on that and then send it out to industry and the doctors to review and massage and bring it back so that we'll really have a set of guidelines and parameters that let us move to the next generation of interocular lenses that will certainly be available to doctors. Jack, what is the, the, the time frame of the work you're doing for the task force? Uh, and what ultimately, again, do you hope to achieve? Well, we, uh, the task force was actually set up by the Academy and the FDA about two months ago, which was uh, about uh, in August. And our goal is over the next year to uh, develop the endpoints and uh, discuss all of the procedures and things that are involved with uh, the measurements, uh, both clinically and in the laboratory and theoretically with these lenses, so that we come up with a good measures that let us accurately uh, reflect the performance of these lenses. I'm pretty confident that by the time uh, this year is up, we will have a document that will be ready for review by everyone else uh, to uh, accurately describe what we want to accomplish for the future. Do you have a, any good models out there for what you're building the, the guidelines around? Are, are these issues handled differently by regulatory agencies outside the U.S.? Or do they do a better job than we do or, or a worse job? Well, it's certainly not as thorough. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that uh, the reason why you see a lot of offshore testing uh, for devices and things before they're brought to the U.S. is that our uh, regulatory affairs and agencies are among the uh, tightest and, and most difficult because we're always trying to protect patients. And uh, so... My comment would simply be that the uh, this process, I think, is the most complete and the most in-depth uh, within the U.S., and that what will happen is after we get a set of guidelines, I would expect that probably this will be disseminated uh, throughout the world as a uh, as the original guideline, which people in other countries will begin to modify and use as needed. 
Interesting. Shifting gears a bit, what, what early stage innovations in, in cataract and refractive procedures really uh, excite you the most that you're really looking forward to seeing? Well, um, there's no question that uh, femtocataract surgery uh, and uh, intraoperative measurements, we call them wavefront or, or refraction, are very exciting because what they are doing is they're both uh, raising the bar in terms of our uh, prediction error that we've had from lens calculations for many, many years. Now, it hasn't replaced them yet. We still do preoperative measurements, and we always have an inventory of lenses available at surgery, but there's no question that, um, for example, the uh, intraoperative measurement of a refraction at the time of surgery has raised the bar from what has been in the past probably uh, somewhere at about 78, 80% of our lenses end up within plus or minus half a diopter. Well, now uh, that bar is up to above 90% of our lenses if you do intraoperative aberrometry, uh, which if you think about it, that reduction from 20% of the cases being outside of a half a diopter tolerance to 10% of the cases being outside uh, reduces the problem by a factor of two. In other words, 20% to 10% is a 50% improvement. And what that means is the doctor has to deal with only half as many people uh, that have a problem because many studies, most notably the most recent by Pablo Artal, is if you're within a half a diopter of the right lens power and a half a diopter of astigmatism, your patients are going to have pretty good results. So that alone has been a significant improvement. And the second thing is the femtocataract surgery, with all the other stuff that's gone along with it, uh, and by that I mean not only the femto that makes repeatable incisions exactly the same depth, the arc lengths, and all of the things that are exact, but in addition to that, the uh, registration. You know, we learned in refractive surgery in the last decade that the eye rotates when you go from a sitting to a lying position. And we never did anything about that in cataract surgery, even though we were using toric lenses and the problem was exactly the same. Wow. And now we actually do take high definition, uh, the Varion system, for example, takes a high definition picture of the uh, patient preoperatively and at the time of surgery provi provides a, an upright display for the doctor to be able to orient the eye in a way that makes sure that the toric IOL or the relaxing incisions or whatever the doctor decides for the astigmatism, which we realize is 60 to 70% of the patients today, uh, is the same as it was at the time of the preoperative measurement. And yet, even though we learned that in refractive surgery with our iris registration systems and stuff, it took us almost a decade to implement that uh, as a part of the femtosecond. So I see us having made a log, log unit improvement, an exponential improvement in our uh, actual performance of cataract surgery with femtosecond and the uh, intraoperative aberrometry just provides another dimension of that which all of which are improving our outcomes so that the real benefit is to the patient with significant uncorrected vision. Mm -hmm.
and what we're seeing is that these new developments that will provide the accommodation uh, dimension that we need will be coming along at a time when we perfected the surgery and the measurements at the time of surgery to fully utilize these new instruments and new devices and new lenses that are coming down the pipeline. So this next decade should be very exciting in terms of truly achieving the outcome that we've always wanted for vision that gives the patient excellent vision at all distances without halos and glare and loss of contrast. And I think this is the decade in which that's actually going to happen. That's exciting. Uh, and the final question, I mean, everything seems to come down to economics. Uh, could you see the, the premium self-pay approach extending beyond IOLs in the Medicare population to maybe glaucoma or retina or, or some other area? Uh, for sure. I think that that, that model uh, is is something that, has given the doctor and the patient the opportunity to allow the patient to choose from these uh, menus of excellence uh, uh, in which we have a basic level of performance that everybody gets. But that these things that are took millions of dollars to develop, millions of dollars to get through the FDA, and so many other things, that have been costs, that it gives an opportunity for the doctor and the company to recoup these costs uh, in a way that allow uh, them not to be a drain on Medicare, but allow them to be a uh, self-pay on the part of the patient that the patient can look and then choose those things that if he wants corrected astigmatism, vision at all distances, and the things that we've talked about, it does uh, give the patient and the doctor the opportunity to allow that to happen. And I, I do think that that model is going to permeate the other areas uh, just as quickly because it is the only model that allows you to, uh, in some way, reward industry and the doctor for moving into areas that provide better outcomes for patients. And the patient is willing to pay for it. Terrific. All right. Well, that's a great conversation, Jack. Thanks so much for, for joining us today. Well, thank you so much. And it's been my pleasure. And I hope this has been helpful to the doctors out there that are providing such good care for our patients and industry so that they know that we're all on the same page and that uh, they've got a task force out there that are working hard to try to make it simpler for them to get these things through the FDA and the processes that have been set up uh, for them and that they're not alone. We're all working together for a common theme to let them get the best products out there at the lowest cost. Great. And, and if, again, again, if anyone wants to see the, the, the PowerPoint presentation, we'll have it up at OIS.net. Thanks, Jack. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to the OIS podcast. Next week, I'll be talking with Dan Myers, CEO of Alamera Sciences. Please listen in. OIS is now accepting applications for presenting companies. Share your technology and clinical data with over 800 industry executives, investors, and key opinion-leading ophthalmologists. To be considered for the Ophthalmology Innovation Showcase, apply online at www.ois.net forward slash application.